From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Battlefields Podcast, where we cover everything from the front lines to the home front. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Faint, here today with my friend and fellow war veteran, Greg Drobny. Greg is a great storyteller and a great American, and I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. And if you like what you hear today, please remember to download, like, and share this podcast and to give us a five-star review. And don't forget to tune in to future episodes of Battlefields. But for now, Greg, welcome to Battlefields. Thank you, Charles, for having me, and it's good to see you once again. Yeah, absolutely. We've been friends a long time, and I know your story very well. I'm looking forward to sharing it with the Battlefields audience. So, Greg, let's talk. Let's start at the beginning. Why did you get into the Army? Was it a, was a profession for you, a life goal? Did you get threatened with jail? How did you get in the Army, and why did you choose the career path that you did? Can I choose all of the above? No, not the jail part. I uh, I was a kind of a vagabond at heart, uh, just a traveler, a blue collar worker in various fields between the ages of about 18 and 28. And uh, when I hit 28, so I'm giving away my age here, that was when September 11th happened. And it was kind of just a, a kick in the butt to say, hey, you know, here's something. And I it is something I contemplated for a while. It was joining the military and I tossed around the idea and just never really committed. Uh, September 11th coming along was that that moment that said, OK, it's time to get serious about something. And so I did and uh, joined with what at the time was called a RIP contract, a Ranger Indoctrination Program contract, which meant infantry, then airborne, then RIP. And uh, made it all the way through that, except for the last two days of RIP. And uh, this old man broke his hip. I'm sure there's a poem in there somewhere that I can make out of it. But uh, that landed me at Ranger Training Brigade, specifically down at 6th Ranger Training Battalion down in Eglin Air Force Base, Florida. So that's where I spent the first three years of my my time in. That sounds miserable, being stuck in RTB with a broken hip. What kind of stuff <laughs> did they have you doing while you were recovering, Greg? So it, it, there's there's some pluses and negatives to being stationed in a place like that. As one of the instructors said once, he said, he said, you guys are the most highly trained non-deployed unit in the Army. Because for two weeks out of the month, I, I was playing bad guy to Ranger students coming through Ranger school. And for the other two weeks of the month, we were training like Ranger. So we were training small unit tactics and, and all of that fun stuff. And then we're switching over into being insurgents and guerrilla fighters for the other two two weeks a month while students were in cycle. So it was fantastic training, but it is at the same time a bit frustrating because you're not going anywhere. You're not doing anything with that, uh, you know, all that knowledge that you're acquiring. But I, for the first couple of months, I kind of didn't do a whole lot. I was I was one of those guys who was either really smart or too dumb. I don't know how, how you categorize it because I, I went off of my crutches way sooner than I should have because I didn't want to be that guy who showed up at a new unit with crutches. So now my old self is paying for that. But, uh, you know, I'm, I, I made a good impression and I ended up doing good things 
like op four. And then eventually became the commander's driver uh, down there. And which, which was just a leadership school in and of itself. You know, you're around a battalion commander uh, all day, every day. And the battalion command sergeant major all day, every day. And it's like, you can't help but soak up a lot of wisdom and leadership in that way. So I, I, I came out of that at least at the very least, very knowledgeable about, you know, how things work in, in that particular world. Well, yeah, commander's driver, that's the best sort of room out there. I'd, I'd always send my driver to go talk to the other drivers to find out what's going on. And you were that <laughs> guy, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the colonel would often ask me, he's like, so, uh, you know, he would hear some story that came out of the barracks. And he'd be like, so what's going on? I have to be real careful about what I'm saying about my guys, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to dish up to the colonel just because he's asking. But at the same time, like, I got to be a trusted source of intel. But <laughs> no, it, it was a phenomenal experience for learning about how to how to lead, you know, what to do, what not to do, things like that. Greg, after you left RTB, where'd you go and what'd you do? So I got out. Uh, my original intent when I got out was uh, I had I had the idea of going into more government work, say something like CIA or possibly um, uh executive protection at, at Department of State, things like that. So my intent was to get out and uh, get my college degree. I was still, again, you got to remember, I was by this point 31 years old and most government jobs require you to be on station at 35. Right. Uh, so I had to get that college degree knocked out. Well, that lasted about a year. And uh, I decided to, I had found out about, the, about this whole uh 19th Special Forces Group. I, I heard about that, you know, there's an actual National Guard Special Forces Unit and you can join up for a year and they'll give you a year to get through SFAS. And if you graduate, then bam, you know, go to Q course and be a be an SF guy. Well, that's why what, what I originally wanted to do. Um, so I gave that a shot. I spent a year trying that. Uh, got hurt again because I'm I'm Mr. Injury Prone Guy. And uh that that took me out of commission for that. And so I went back to college and then found my way inadvertently, well, somewhat purposefully in the security contracting world. And uh, as we were talking before the show, mostly what that ended up being is is in and out of Central America for for a while, for about a year while I was doing school. And then I ended up as a PSYOP team chief uh, operating in Iraq. I did that for the last um, year and a half of my my total eight-year commitment. And uh, yeah, so that kind of concluded my military time. So do you have any particularly memorable experiences in the Army other than being injured several times? Anything (laughs) sticks out to you as something particularly memorable or enjoyable about your time in uniform? Oh, I, I think, you know, kind of what I hinted at a minute ago is the, the leadership experience and knowledge, especially down at RTB. Like, I didn't realize how good I had it until later when I went to the big army. And I realized that, that there are a lot of people in the army and a lot of people in the military that have never seen what right looks like. And I had. I was fortunate enough to, again, be the driver for a very, very accomplished uh leader who had done a lot in the military and went on to do even more. I think the last I heard, he's he's running the the new infantry museum at Fort Benning that they just opened oh, wow. uh, recently. I think he's he was actually one of the project managers who oversaw the creation of that. So, you know, a, a really great leader. And then other guys like, like Florida Ranger Camp is kind of a, a bastion of 
guys who have been there, done that, who want to take a little bit of break, and they end up at this pretty choice duty station, really, in, in terms of relaxing. You know, you get the beach, you get the best of both worlds. Um, and I had the chance to soak that up from, from these guys, you know, former CAG operators, former SF guy, former Rangers, like all these guys who had all this experience. And you just sit there and soak it up and soak it up and soak it up. And then later going to the big army, it was kind of this eye-opening thing of like, oh, you guys don't know this. Like, you don't know any of that. You know, I didn't realize how spoiled I had been. In other words, it's kind of like the rich kid going out into the, to the world and realizing, oh, not everybody gets all of this. Um, so that really stuck out. It really did of, of just how much I was able to learn from some really great guys. Greg, when you were doing PSYOP, was that in Iraq? Were you a PSYOP soldier in Iraq? Yeah, I first I first joined uh, the unit and then had to go through the whole reclass school because I'd been an infantry guy. And so I spent, I don't know, eight or nine months here stateside, uh, you know, going through the school, going through all the stuff with the unit. And then we deployed and that would have been uh, the end of summer 2008. So in the summer 2008 through, you know, into summer 2009, I was in Iraq. I started out as an assistant team leader. And uh, just a couple months later, ended up with my own team running the the team into crit. So that whole AO, we were, and by that point, as as you know, that was when the status of forces agreement was changing. That we were really being drawn back. So I went in that in the span of that year, I went from going out on all kinds of patrols with all the infantry units, doing all these things, to sitting at a desk reading news stories from Al Jazeera like that, you know, that was that transition of like, man, it was like the last couple of months there in Iraq was boring. There was just really not much to do. So, yeah, I was there about the same time I was down in Balad in 2008. Right. I remember being pretty sporty in, in a couple of places, like to crit, like where you were. Well, was it tough to go from the infantry to PSYOP? Was that a um, investment? It was ironic. So tying into what you just said, we were actually at uh, the team I started out on was at Fob Palawoda, which was right there near Balad. So Balad was the the main, you know, JBB was the the main base there. And uh, we started out there. And like you said, it was it was a little bit dicey. There's a couple of places were a little crazy there when we first got there. Um, But the, the funny thing is, and you drawing that comparison is one of my memorable moments from the army It's because here I go through this whole reclass training. I'm now a PSYOP guy. And the first thing I'm doing in Iraq is I find myself in a patrol going through orchards with infantry guys. I was like, I didn't, I'm doing the exact same thing. What am I doing? You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> like I went through all this different stuff and studied all the culture, supposed to be a cultural matter expert. And I'm patrolling with my M4 in a, in a, for, you know, in a squad through an orchard. Like, <laughs> it's not a lot, not a lot of psyop going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about that when you were talking about adjustments of my own. I, I came in under the branch detail program. So I did four years in the infantry in the 101st, pre 9-11. I was actually in Korea as a MI company commander on 9-11. Okay. And definitely different. I love both experiences. Glad I had them. But it was definitely different. I wasn't doing any patrolling in downtown Seoul or whatever. <laughs> When I was in Korea, for sure. So, Greg, you mentioned you were in for eight years. What what drove you to make the decision to leave the Army? 
Um, and, and to be clear, it was more like that was my eight year, you know, when you join as an enlisted guy, you technically have an eight year commitment, even if you sign up for, you know, I originally signed up for three, uh, then I spent a year in the National Guard, and then that whole last year and a half period in the reserves, which was mostly active. So, you know, not all of that eight years, some of that was spent, you know, doing government contracting stuff too. Um, but really what it, what it came down to for me uh, was the recognition of, and I think every guy, most guys should come to a point in their lives when they say, Hey, I, I couldn't have gone pro. Um, you know, that old saying, you know, I could have gone pro. I could have been the pro player. No, you couldn't. Right, you, right. Probably, you probably couldn't have. And I had to come to come to the realization of, you know, a big part of me wanted to be that SF operator guy. And I had a body that just would not keep up with my mind. You know, I had this, I had all these things that I could do and think through and all of my leaders said, Hey, he's really smart and responsible and he does all the right things. And I broke bones and I, you know, pulled spinal discs out of place. You know, all of these things, like my body was just not keeping up. So I had to really confront that reality and say, okay, I got to use, use, you know, the, the mind, upstairs that God gave me rather than trying to just punish my body because ultimately I, I did want a family. I wanted to have kids who I could run and play with and not be a, a complete cripple by the time I was 40. <laughs> and so it was really just a decision based on that of realizing. And as I, I was, I was getting into school, I was getting into academic work. I was like, this is, this is easy for me. You know, I can get into this stuff and and do pretty well and I'm not destroying my body. So that really was, was the big part of it is, is coming to that recognition of, okay, what is it that I'm actually good at? And, and taking a critical look at that rather than simply saying, oh, this is, you know, I'm going to go pro. I'm going to be that door kicking beard wearing operator. Eh, probably not. Most of us probably can't. So <laughs> just accept reality and go from there. Well, Greg, you've definitely gone pro with that beard. We were talking about it uh, before before the show. That's that looks good, brother. Well done. <laughs> well, I got to at least look the part and pretend. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Greg, what did you do after the army? So the first thing I did was went back to school full time, and then uh, you know I was down at CU Denver actually, and had decided on history as my major for my undergrad, and I was trying to knock that out and. Uh, at that time, met my now wife, and that was a very clear thing from the very beginning. Of well, this is this is a for sure deal for me. <laughs> anyway, it took her some convincing, you know what I mean. Um, but it, that that interrupted the the full time schooling because you know you're you're a single guy. You just got back from Iraq. What's what do you do? You go you go to school and collect that sweet GI Bill BAH, and you know that's it. You're done, right? Well, then, you know, getting married, it's like, no, I got to get serious. I ended up working in politics. I ended up working for a massive political interest group and and doing a lot of copywriting for uh, people who still hold positions in Congress and uh, working, you know, working with direct mail campaigns and political influencing campaigns and special interest groups, which was it's it was interesting because it was kind of a continuation of PSYOP, really, because that's what PSYOP is, as you know, it's it's just information campaigns, right? You're you're trying to change the hearts and minds of of key leaders and individuals, things like that. So politics ended up being kind of that natural fit uh, for that same same kind of mentality. The problem was that I, I hated it. Uh, number one, as you probably know, working for a nonprofit in politics 
is not going to bring home the bacon as the saying right. goes. It's you're not going to ever make very much money. And it, it's, it's nasty. It's nasty business of, you know, you're slinging mud. That's literally your job is to sling mud at people and, and make people look really bad. That didn't have a lot of appeal to me uh, just in a general sense of, you know, making a living slinging mud at people. It's like, eh, I'm too much of a philosopher for that. You know, I'm too much of a, Oh, I can see both sides of things and understand, you know, the big picture. So it just didn't hold a lot of interest. But at that time, I started getting into into writing and doing a lot of writing. And that that led me to, uh, you know, how we met, which was through Ranger Up, uh, run by uh, Nick Palmashano. I basically kind of partly won and tied in a writing contest that they held and uh, ended up working with Rob Ulrey, who, who technically won the, you know, he won the writing yep. contest, but they never told me I didn't win. So I just kept writing and submitting articles and they ended up paying me. <laughs> so I, I just pestered him enough that I ended up getting paid for it. So that that kind of was my ticket away from the political realm, even though obviously we were writing about politics because it brought a lot of a lot of views, but uh, it, it brought me out of that political world. I, I was there for almost three years working in a political interest group. So. Yeah. What a great organization Ranger up in that blog was. That's how I got my start as well. And I remember working with you early on and, and Rob and a number of great people on there, especially Nick. We were talking about the show about our different interactions with Nick Palmashano and, and what a good dude he is. I remember seeing him recently. I think he was on Timcast IRL. I was making breakfast one morning and I, I just had Facebook on and it was scrolling through random videos and I heard a familiar voice. So that that dude's into everything these days. Yeah. Well, and it was crazy because here, you know, just what was it recently when we saw this? Uh, I think it was something either about Ukraine or it was about the thing in, in Afghanistan as we were pulling out of there. And I see this thing come up on Fox News and it says, um, it says Tim Kennedy, Chad Robichaux, and Nick Palmashano. And I was like, it's not often that I hear a Fox News story where I know every single person involved <laughs> in it, but there we are. You know, there's three guys who I've known personally and worked with through Ranger Up, and they're all involved in this. So, yeah, he's he's all over the place. I haven't spoken to him in a little while, but uh, he's a busy guy. So, you know, not our, our paths are now in a little bit different place, so I don't really have a lot of crossover with what he's doing so i don't i hope he's doing well i hope things are going good for nick but i haven't haven't spoken to him in a while yeah i saw him at the army navy game two years ago he's a west point grad i'm not i just i just used to work there and he <laughs> seemed he seemed happy we had a good conversation drank some somebody else's liquor and just ate food and had a good time it was great which is the best kind i mean that's somebody else paid for it yeah good liquor that somebody else buys man i'm in i'm in, <laughs> I'm in all day maybe too much i don't know so so you you wrote for Ranger Up and of course Havoc Journal. We featured a, a lot of your work uh, over the years. What other kind of writing are you into? You, you mentioned going back to school. Did you have a, a particular writing interest that you were into? Uh, yeah. So it was it. You know, speaking of the Ranger Up thing and writing, like that was an interesting time for me when I started there because it was a proving ground for becoming a, a better writer. In that I was simultaneously, I was working in a political realm when I first started. And I'm here I am writing copy for, for actual sitting senators and Congress people. Uh, I was simultaneously doing that along with Ranger Up, which was, as you know, a lot of humor based, very punchy type articles. You know, you're using humor and invective and a lot, you know, it's crazy. It's over the top, but that's what it's meant to be. 
And then I was also working on my history degree. So it's like I'm doing academic work, I'm doing political copy, and I'm doing, you know, polemical stuff for Ranger Hub. So it was a great learning experience. And it helped helped me understand like what I enjoyed the most, what I most gravitated towards. And it's kind of what I focused the rest of my academic path on, which was mostly political and religious ideologies over time. You know, that meeting point of of the the political realm and when it interacts with religious ideologies and, you know, how did that look 500 years ago? What about 300 years ago? What about 100 years ago? And that ended up being a, an area of great interest to me. Uh, and I focused a lot more of my educational path on. It has almost no bearing whatsoever on what I'm doing now. So that it's really interesting in that, you know, I spent all this time and folks, and I'm glad I did because I learned a lot that helped me, but <laughs> here I am now working in the tech world. It really doesn't have much bearing in that at all. <laughs> I was thinking about something you just brought up just a minute ago, Greg. We're talking about writing and how different academic and the type of blogging that you and I were into, how different that is. And I remember when I first started with Ranger Up, that was a hard adjustment for me because at that point, I was very used to academic writing style, cite all your sources, footnotes, APA style, whatever. And I don't remember if it was you or Rob, it might even been Nick, was just like, bro, that's not, no one's going to read that. Nobody cares. It's too, it's too long. <laughs> it's too technical. This is yeah. how you need to write. It needs to be quick, punchy, and people need to be able to read it in like 30 seconds or less, or you're going to lose your audience. And that was really eye-opening for me. I Working with students, I normally have the opposite problem. It's like they they send you know a formal paper in. It's like a conversation. Like now yes. you got to yeah. church this up a little bit. But yeah, I remember that in the early days working with it. That was a huge adjustment for me. Did you find the same type of thing, or was that just natural for you? I think it was somewhat natural for me because and and here's here's why. And I'm going to date myself. I was I was actually one of the I was kind of an original mill blogger inadvertently. Um, I started blogging, technically speaking, in 2001. I went into infantry basic training in uh, October October of 2001, is I think when I went in. And a friend of a friend ran a, and got to remember, if you, people listening right now might not, you know, we, we might be dating ourselves. 2001, blogging was not really a thing. No. The internet was really kind of this, yeah, some people were on it and doing this thing, but it wasn't this ubiquitous force in our lives that it, that it is today. Well, a friend of a friend was, uh, he was a newspaper editor and he ran a blog, which was a new thing in 2001. He knew that I could write because we had exchanged some stuff before. And so I started sending him letters that were in what we now know as the mill blogging fashion. So I was recording my basic training experience in kind of a humorous punch in the face kind of invective way, you know, trying to tell funny stories about military experience. I was sending them him letters and he was publishing them on the website and giving me feedback. So all the way back then, I was I was kind of learning that punchy type method. It was then an adjustment later when I was like, oh, I got to go to school and do now I have to be proper and I have to actually do it right. And, you know, I can't drop F-bombs in the middle of a paper. You know, that doesn't work. Um, so I, I kind of learned it the opposite of what you're just you're saying. But it, it's I think either direction you go, it's a learning experience as long as you're willing to do it. And I was I was willing to hear feedback and just say, OK, tell me how the best way to write here is. And, and eventually, you know, you kind of meld them without even thinking about it. 
I think it's absolutely right. It's it's totally natural for me to switch in between them. It was hard to get to that point. I think it's mm-hmm. just a matter of knowing your audience. And I think it you is. think about that going into it. And, and that's also, really the key of messaging, right? I mean, any kind of information campaign or anything like that, it's like, do you know your audience? So that's why it was hugely educational. Right. Greg, about the time that you got started with mill blogging, 2001, and a little bit after that, I remember that being frowned upon by the military. Like it was a big deal to, to in some units if you were going to blog and stuff like. I remember guys getting getting hemmed up over it in a way we're just not seeing now. Did you experience any of that in the early days? I didn't. I never heard about it because I don't know. And it's one of those things. I, I was in that sweet spot of there. There is the internet. It exists, but it's not like somebody is out there monitoring it from you know uh, Fort Benning. You know what I mean? Like the commander of the, of the US school of infantry is not monitoring the internet to find out who's writing about it yet because it's like they don't even know about it, right? So I don't. Nobody noticed that I am aware of. But I think even even with the rules that came along over the next couple of years, I think I would have been fine because everything I was doing was mostly humor based. You know, it was and okay. it was purely observational. There was nothing I was divulging that wouldn't be known to people who watch the Discovery Channel. You know, there wasn't any. I wasn't divulging anything that that would would have been frowned upon. I don't think. So I think it would have been one of those, if even if somebody had come across it, I highly doubt it would have been, you know, me talking about the, the platoon's Gomer pile, because we all had one, right? Everybody had a Gomer in their, in their platoon. Me, you know, telling a funny story about the drill sergeant breaking a bottle of ketchup over the guy's head because, he did, you know, he didn't leave the safety on his rifle. I don't think anybody's going to care about that <laughs> as a guess, but I could be wrong. I mean, I don't know. I, I but I, I flew under the radar, you know, and nobody's, nobody ever said a word. And I'll keep in mind too, I was writing these letters by hand and then mailing them to someone who then put it up on the internet. So I don't know. Yeah. Nice. Well, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about code, code platoon. So you're out of the army, you had all these, all these other experiences you're writing, often and now you were in code, code platoon which i think is very interesting and important work so can you talk to our audience a little bit about what you what code platoon is and what you're doing with it yeah yeah and but i think at first because of what we we're talking about before that i think it's important to note for everybody listening out there how important networking is and how how establishing good relationships can lead to good things. And me working at Code Platoon ties into everything that we've been talking about, you know, with writing for Ranger Up. Here I am, I've become this blogger writing for Ranger Up, who at the time, um, and for the audience, so they're aware, when we were writing for Ranger Up, which would have been 2012 through like 2015, they were the biggest mill blog on the internet. Yeah. We yeah. we had readership. I had readers uh, sometimes on some of my articles that were 70 to 80,000 page views. You know, it was just incredible at that time what we were who we were able to reach and how many. Well, all that group of writers that we had, you know, I interacted with all of these people and became internet friends as it were. You know, we we haven't met in person, but we have these good relationships. And through those contacts, I was introduced to this company, Code Platoon. Uh, all of the people who connected me with Code Platoon, I have never met in person, but I treated them respectfully online. We all had these good reputes, you know, rapports with one another. And so we were able to facilitate these contacts. And I think it's just a, a good reminder for people out there and, you, you know, military veterans who are getting out. Be careful with how you treat people, even in the virtual world, because 
if you know if you're spouting off and mouthing off on all these different forums and pages man this community is not as big as you think and you know doing the opposite served me incredibly well treating people respectfully even who I disagreed with, you know, if we were writing about politics, and I say this specifically because one of the people who connected me with Code Platoon, this facilitated this connection, he and I disagree on nearly every possible political issue you could, you could, and yet we still get along. We still treat people, you know, very well, and it facilitated this connection. So I, I just think it's a good reminder, and I like to remind people of that, of how you treat people and talk to people online, even in this virtual world, it matters. It, it very much matters and it, it can turn into something like this. So, you know, long story short is I ended up here at this company. Uh, it's a training program, Code Platoon. And a lot of people out there have probably heard about software development boot camps. And the idea is with a software development boot camp is to shortcut the university process. And I say that as someone, and, and for anyone listening who knows Charles or I, knows that we're not short on formal education. So I'm not here to disparage the university experience per se. I mean, I think between the two of us, we've got like five master's degrees or something, Charles. I don't even know. what you, Charles may have more from the last time I talked to him. That's, <laughs> that's how he rolls. Um, but the idea is in the tech world, when it comes to writing computer code and writing code for software development purposes, the university experience can can slow that down and and was proving to be a little bit cumbersome for people who just wanted to you know learn the tools of the trade for learning software development and so these coding boot camps started popping up you know 10 15 years ago and it's an immersive experience that teaches people to become software engineers in like a, a boot camp model so an all day everyday thing for three and a half to four months and you're suddenly you're well-versed in computer coding and software development. The difference at Code Platoon is two primary things. Code Platoon is number one, a nonprofit, and number two, devoted entirely to the military community. So the only people who go to Code Platoon, and it's not to say that military veterans can't go to some other coding schools out there, of course they can, but at Code Platoon, the only students you have are transitioning military veterans. So people who are on their way out of the military, people who are already out of the military or spouses of one of those two. So you can be spouse, you can be military spouse, and you can attend code platoon, but otherwise it is only military people. And let me, and let me specify with a funny story here. I had just had someone come through our entire application process recently and go to submit their proof of military service and they only served in the Indian military. So I do need to specify that we only serve the U.S. military, <laughs> not, not militaries of other countries, <laughs> because apparently I need to specify that. Because sometimes people go through our whole application process, and it turns out they're, they are a military vet, just not our military. Well, so. at least he didn't submit like his airsoft clan or whatever. <laughs> right? I mean, close yeah, enough. At least it was an actual military. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the, the Call of Duty badge to, to <laughs> float through the system. Haven't seen it yet, but you never know. It's, it's 2023. Anything can happen. Well, Greg, I, I was thinking about what you said about the importance of the network, and I'm I'm doing some research on veteran entrepreneurship for my doctorate, and I found the same thing. That's one of the most determinative things is the strength of your network, which also, like you said, is closely tied to your own credibility. And I'm thinking of any number of vets that operate in our space whose reputation is just in the toilet and how difficult it is to function in there because reputation gets around. 
Yes. And I was also thinking and kind of smiling when you're talking about the friend that you disagree with. I know exactly who that dude is. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But uh, <laughs> I, I feel the same way that you do. That dude is so smart and so articulate and Absolutely. willing to consider other points of view in a professional way. And I think I, I wrote his name down. I'm going to invite him on the show later on. When we stop recording, we'll talk we'll talk about him a little bit more and reminisce. But Absolutely. Yeah, I brought up some, some great points there. And Greg, when it comes to skill, I'm sorry, when it comes to Code Platoon, is this something that folks can use GI Bill for? Can they skill bridge? Does it cost them anything? How does this work? Yeah, so, you know, up front, uh, it's important to note that when I said that we're a nonprofit, I I mean that, and and it's one of the places I've worked where you can you can say that with a straight face. I've worked for nonprofits before where you can't. Um, in this particular instance, it really means that, and how it relates to tuition. We everything we do is structured around the idea of making this a, as affordable as possible for everybody who comes through the program. So we have multiple funding options, one of which is VA. You know, So we've got the VA and it kind of branches out from there. The VA created something a few years ago that's been brilliant help for veterans and it's called Vet Tech. And it's a program that exists within, it's kind of like nested in the GI Bill itself. So it has to do with GI Bill eligibility but it's a program that is specific to programs like ours. So it's literally designed for tech schools that are not university affiliated. GI Bill, and this, I'm not gonna get too deep into the weeds for this because I don't wanna put people to sleep, but GI Bill funding actually has to do with state level authorization, oddly enough. It doesn't make sense because it's, it's a federal program, but it still has to be authorized by a governor of a state. So that's where you get into the weeds of like accreditation issues, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, the VA says after years and years and years of veterans saying, hey, I want to go to a program that's not in the university system. How do I do that? How do I use my VA benefits? Well, one of the things that the VA did to respond to that was create this program called Vet Tech. And it allows you, allows you to go through a program like ours based on nothing but GI Bill eligibility, and it doesn't use your GI Bill time. So if you have three years of GI Bill time and you come through our program, when you're done, you still have three years of GI Bill time. So it's kind of cool. So that's one of the options, but we also use uh, Voc Rehab. You know, Voc Rehab is another uh, program through the VA that has to do, generally speaking, with disabled vets. Um, depends on who you talk to, how, how well that works. It works great once it's accepted for us. But in the event that somebody doesn't have a VA option, let's say they've completely exhausted their GI Bill and therefore they're not eligible for any of that vet tech or anything like that, then we go back to what I was, this is why I was saying the nonprofit thing is really important. We have a very generous scholarship offerings and we have scholarships for just every demographic. I mean, we have a scholarship that is like, I think the requirement is that you're a veteran. We have a scholarship, the requirement is you're a spouse. I mean, that's it. Like literally the, the requirements are not extensive. We don't do scholarships like a lot of universities type scholarships. You don't have to write an essay to get $500 and, you know, write another essay to get $1,000. No, no, no. We have very robust scholarship offerings. And so no, you know, the most people ever pay for our program is, is way less than half of what the actual tuition is. So when we say nonprofit, we mean that in that we post up that our tuition is $18,000. Nobody pays that. You know, that, yes, technically is the tuition, 
but be, being a nonprofit and working with a lot of the big companies that we do, a uh, lot of lot of very large tech companies, financial institutions that are wanting to see veterans succeed, we're able to cut that cost way, way down. And in most cases, it'll eliminate it entirely. So yeah, it's it's a it's a great program. That way we have a great scholarship, you know, and grant fundraising organization on that side of the house that works really hard to to make sure that no, you know, everybody can attend Code Platoon. We're not going to let costs stand in the way of you attending. Greg, what's the best way for people to find out more about Code Platoon, either as a potential student or to help support what, what the important work you guys are doing? Yeah, the, the best way is to go to codeplatoon.org. You know, that's the website. Uh, the actual best way to find out everything you need to know is to email me directly. Um, you can find if you email the info line at codeplatoon.org, it's going to come to me. But the easiest way is just Greg G R E G at codeplatoon.org, and that's what I do for Code Platoon. I'm the I'm not a um, tech guru. I'm not a software. I mean, goodness, I have master's degrees in history and psychology, and I ended up working in a tech company. Tell me how that works out. I still don't get it, but here I am. Um, so I'm not going to coach you on how to write code. That's not my forte. But if you want to know about the program, about what we do, about how it works and how to get involved, that is what I do for Code Platoon is, is uh, you know, just kind of help veterans make a decision on their next steps. And I should add here too, the, the cool thing about working for this organization and for anybody who wants to talk to me, I'm not a salesman either. Uh, I have, oddly enough, talked people out of coming to Code Platoon because it just wasn't the right fit. And that's okay. That you know, I'm not here to hard sell you on you have to be a software engineer or something like that. You come to me, you ask me questions, and I'm going to help you no matter what you what path you choose, because that's what I do. That's that's what I'm happy to do in the veteran space. And I've been doing it now for well, going on 13 years. And and I'm, you know, that's what I intend to continue to do is just help out whoever is looking for that, that path. You know, what is that path that I'm supposed to be on? That's what I want to help you do. And if it's code platoon, awesome. If it's not, that's cool too. So that's one of the things I like most about our community, Greg, when you got good people that are acting in good faith out there, you got folks that'll that do any number of things to help. Just think about all the times that that Ranger Up or even Task and Purpose, Black Rifle Coffee, all those folks have talked to me personally about making Havoc Journal better, about, about how to get better at podcasts and things. These guys are technically competitors with us, but they're mm -hmm. like, hey, what can I do to help you out as a fellow vet? So I'm glad to hear that that's the same type of attitude you have over in Code, Code Platoon. Absolutely. And it's it's the ethos of the organization as a whole. Uh, Rod Levy, who started the organization, ne he never served in the military, but has a heart for, for helping veterans. Um, he was an immigrant himself and worked in finance for most of his his career and then wanted to do something, you know, something for the veteran community because he felt passionate about doing it. And he, he really does. It flows through the organization, you know, that passion for helping because everyone seems to have the same genuine uh, interest. It's not, uh, you know, we need to get more numbers just to sustain ourselves. It's really not. It's about getting good candidates, finding people who may have otherwise never considered this path, but it turns out that they're completely capable of it. You know, that's that's a passion of ours as well. It's it's not, you know, forcing you and, and saying, hey, you know, you have to do this path. It's, hey, well, you know, what is your path? And if it coincides with our path, 
Awesome. Let us help you. And if not, that's okay too. <laughs> we still want to help, but there, obviously you have limited resources and what you can do there. But I, I am happy as a person, I'm happy to talk to anyone about any fat they choose because that's what I like doing. Nice. Well, Greg, in the show notes, I'll make sure to put the link to the Co-Platoon site and your Co-Platoon email in there to make it easier for folks to find. So they're not trying to write while they're, they're driving their car listening to this. Yeah, yeah. Please, Greg. What kind of other things are you into? We talked about your work with Coblatoon. We talked about your writing. What are the things you like to do, and what kind of big projects and plans do you have for the future for you personally? Ooh, um, I I have four kids, so that that's about as intense as it gets. <laughs> no, I, I uh, my my littlest guys, my they're seven and nine. They both do homeschool. So in addition to working. Um, full time, you know, I, I help them do that. And beyond that, like I, I kind of, and you know, the downside, I, I realized this over the last six months, especially the downside of the amount of writing that you and I did, you know, the combination of blogging and academic writing, um, it, it, I think I hit a saturation point and I had to take a step yeah. back from writing for a while because I just, I didn't have any more. It was almost like I had that creative wall of, I don't know that my fingers are working anymore for that. So I had to take kind of a break from any kind of writing, but I have found myself in a couple of ghostwriting positions over the last year. Um, I, you know, by nature of being a ghostwriter, you're not supposed to talk about what that ghostwriting is. So I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to take credit away. And, and I should be clear, the ghostwriting that I'm doing is very much me taking the thoughts of someone at, and basically transcribing them. It's it's not a matter of, you know, I'm really writing, because there are ghostwriting, for those who don't know, some ghostwriting roles out there, some of the, these famous people whose books that you've maybe read, those are almost entirely the thoughts of the ghostwriter and the research they did. Uh, in this instance, what I'm doing is more for a person who is in a prominent position and doesn't have time to do it themselves. And it is all their thoughts. It's 100% their thoughts and me just literally organizing it on paper. Um, so it's it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I can't really take much credit other than the ability to type. So um, beyond that, I, I don't have, you know, uh, right now in Colorado, as I look out the window, I'm shoveling snow. That's a hobby. Um, <laughs> well, it's Colorado. I know there's snow right now, but if you give it a day, it'll be 80, right? It will. I guarantee it'll probably get up to 40 today or something, you know, and sun shining. It was snowing. Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, but I, I don't really have a whole lot of hobbies other than just I do a lot of reading and a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. learning about things that are going to help help me help others. Really, that's kind of where I am right now. Um, the academia, I think I hit a hit a point where I was done there, you know, finished my second master's and said, yeah, I don't know that I need to get a doctorate unless I pursued academia as a profession, but things are going well for me right now. So I, I kind of put that on hold. So my hobbies are pretty simple. Oh, I, I, I play guitar. That's what I've been doing lately is, is, uh, dinky around on a guitar after I stopped doing that about 20 years ago. And you know, when you, when a, when a couple of your big guitar heroes die in the, in the span of two years, you know, we had Eddie Van Halen passed away a couple of years ago. Then Jeff Beck just died a couple those were my two favorite guitar players. Like, all right, it's time to start playing the guitar again. So, you know, that's about my only hobby other than other than work, work and, and helping kids with school. And doing kids, well, that, that'll definitely keep you busy. It so, does. It does indeed. So, Greg, what kind of advice would you offer to veterans who are looking to get started in the mill blog 
writing space? What do you think they should think about? What do you think they should do if they want to get into it? Uh, the the first question is probably easier, ease, more easily answered than the second. You know, what should you think about? The first thing you think that you should think about, um, and I think think you'll agree with me on this, Charles, is being open to criticism. Yeah. Um, I think it's really like you have to get your mind in that place. Just like for you, you were very accomplished, uh, you know, in terms of your ability to put words on a page. There was never a question about your ability to do that. But switching to that style, like you were talking earlier of moving from, you know, academic dry tone into punch you in the face invective, you know, that's being, but you have to be open to be able to make that change, right? We all know that you have to make that change to get people to read your stuff on the internet, but you have to be willing to engage in that criticism. And that's a harder thing than I think people realize, you know, they, they want to say that they're open to criticism and then they put words on a page. And as soon as you criticize them, it's, you know, it's game over They can, and they can't take it. So the biggest thing that I say in terms of mentality is, are you willing to receive criticism? You know, can you handle putting your thoughts? And this is a big thing to a lot of people, by the way, and I've learned this over, you know, editing many, many, many people, especially veterans over the years, putting your heartfelt thoughts on t- into words on a page or on a computer, whatever you want to call it, uh, and having people tear that apart is hard. It, it is really difficult. And unless you're willing to do that, um, be real leery about, because you're going to be putting your stuff out in the public. First, you have to have your peers you know, grade it and say, hey, this is good, but this is not. This is not, but this is. But after that, you have to be willing to put it out on the ye old interwebs, and there's going to be a thousand people that are going to tear your stuff apart. And it's, you know, you can put all this time into it and effort. And then five minutes after you post it, somebody's going to critique the first line because that's where they found a problem. <laughs> 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 and, and they didn't read the rest. They just launched into a tirade. And you have to be able to deal with that. And if you are, cool, awesome. I'm a little bit of a sociopath when it comes to that. I, you know, people could tear myself apart. I, it does not affect me at all. I, you know, it's just not that big of a deal, but to others it, it is. And so you got to be ready for that. Now, the second question I think is a harder one. And, uh, you know, that question of what do you do now? You know, what are your next steps? Um, I think, you know, it going on with the first, I think the best place to start is to write something, write anything and ask people who you trust to look at it and give you criticism you know, write, just start writing, start writing on something you're passionate about, find a subject that you care about, write something about it and ask other people if it's good. If it is, if you get a lot of positive feedback, awesome. Then that's time to move on to the next step, which is, you know, finding out who's going to publish that. In that realm, I, I, I trust your opinion far more than my own, Charles. I don't know who the best place is, you know, who are the big vet blogs these days? I don't know. I think it. I think we've come to a point in the veteran space where you're starting to see specialized uh, areas more than you used to. You know, Ranger Up and the Rhino Den was a dumping ground for anything. We we had humor stuff. We had serious geopolitical analysis going. On. We had everything. Now I think I'm guessing as a guess. I think a lot of these places have a little bit more. You know, oh, we focus more on humor. We focus more on serious analysis. So I don't know. It depends on on the style. I say I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I couldn't I couldn't agree more on that. And I was thinking when you're talking about how the Rhino Den Ranger Up had had we had the Writers Forum, 
where you'd post you'd post your articles in there before even the, the editor would see it and you'd get feedback from your fellow writers. And that was really helpful to get that peer feedback. And some of it's tough love because we were all, mm-hmm. for the most part, we were all vets. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, this part sucks or this part's inaccurate. I think that really helped us be better. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm like you, I, I've written a lot. I, I write under a pseudonym. I write under my real name. And the the old phrase, haters are going to hate, you know, Taylor, Taylor Swift. Uh, handling that. <laughs> the ph- um, the- philosopher of our age. Exactly. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. I, I just think you just got to not read the comments section because mm-hmm. that's where good thought goes to die is in the comments. Yes. You just, you make the best product you can, you set it loose and you don't worry about whether people are like it or not. What I found, and you might've had the same experience, Greg, is years later, people have come up to me and said, Hey, I wrote this. I read this thing that you wrote. <clears throat> I didn't say anything about it at the time, but it really meant something to me. So you mm-hmm. don't know the good that's going to come from it. If someone likes your article or they'll think about it later, they're never going to say anything. The right. most, most of the time, they're not. Sometimes you'll say, hey, I think it's a great piece. You'll catch a lot more hate than yes. you will love for the pieces that you write. So just let it Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, you will. And, and that's the unfortunate part about being a writer is you have to come to grips with the fact that you're going to receive far more negativity than you will positivity. Um, unless you're writing, there's subjects that come along every once in a while where, where you can write something. I, there was an example of, uh, it was when Tom Clancy died. Tom Clancy uh, passed away when we were working there at the Rhino Den. We were writing for the Rhino Den. I put it up in the forum. I said, does anybody want to write a quick obituary, you know, kind of like, yay, you know, Tom Clancy was a great writer, that kind of thing. And nobody took it. Nobody took it. And I didn't really want to. And the reason I didn't want to is because I'm not a huge fan of his books. Right. So I I just it's just not my thing. You know, the technical let's spend two pages describing a a Abrams tank. I don't care. Just say (laughs) Abrams tank and move on. Um, That's just not my thing. But but I I decided to do it anyways. And I, I thought, well, I'll just write something short that conveys that he accomplished a lot. And a lot of people loved his stuff. And cool. It was just a general positive thing. It was short. I put it up. It got something like 60,000 page views. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and it, it was being shared all over the place. And I was like, wow, really? Because usually you have to write something really angry. And, you know, because right. most of the time, unless you're making fun of someone, nobody cares. No, you, they don't. you write something positive. Very rarely do people care. But that, you know, every once in a while, something would come along like that. But I, I agree with you. You know, I did it for you said that you, you got people saying that something meant a lot to them. The phrase that stuck with me. And then this is one thing I will offer to people thinking about getting into writing. The phrase that worked for me was that somebody early on in my writing said, uh, and this was on a, it was on a political piece, I, I believe. I don't even remember what the specific issue was, but their response was, I don't necessarily agree with you, but you made me think deeper about it. And I realized that's the best compliment I could ever receive as a writer. It, I wasn't yeah. setting out to change people's minds. And I, I, from that point forward, I looked at my writing in exactly that, that tone. I don't want to change your mind. I want to make you think deeper about it. That's it. That's all I care about is, is can you think deeper than you did five minutes ago on, on this particular topic? And so I use that as a reasonable goal rather than, well, if I write, you know, there's a lot of people you can tell it in their tone and the way they write. They set out with the intent of, well, I'm going to change people's minds by banging away and the keep. If I put the words in this order, people are going to see the light and they're going to change their minds. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not going to happen. 
It's just very, very rare if it does at all. So, you know, for me, it was, you know, realizing that realistic goal of, you know, you didn't change my mind. I disagree with you, but you made me pause and consider something for, for a few more minutes. Awesome. I win. High five me. And that was the goal that I set out to do. So finding, and my point is finding that little thing that's reasonable to be your motivating kind of, that's your target. That's the target to zero in on, not something nebulous and vague, like, you know, I'm going to change the world. No, you stop. (laughs) I I couldn't agree more, Greg. And that's what I found over the years is you just got to stop hating, uh, caring about the haters. That's why we decided Havoc Journal's motto was going to be let them hate as long as they also read. Which, is, <laughs> Which I've always loved. Yeah, I, 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 I'm rather proud of that one myself. But yeah, let them, let them hate as long as they're reading. You're right. This story sucks. You should tell all your little friends this story sucks and they should all share it and everything. And now it's gone around the internet twice. So thanks. Yep. And then every once in a while, you'll hit that malleable middle of people who are, who can be persuaded and you'll give them something to think about, just like you just said. So, yeah, I agree, mm-hmm. Greg. That's that's a great feeling as a writer to, to for someone to, to care enough about something you wrote to say, hey, you made me think. Right. Right. And that's because that's all I could ever hope for as a writer. I'm, that's it. Well, Greg, I know you write a lot about politics and about military affairs and religion. Do you have anything off the top of your head that's a favorite piece or a favorite subject that you've written about over the years? Ooh, um, that's tough because there's a there's a lot in that that field, you know, especially where where politics and religion meet. Like I said earlier, uh, I did my master's thesis on uh, the Roman Catholic Church's stance on both communism and fascism immediately prior to World War II. So I, I basically asked the question of, you know, okay, if if all of my stuff, all of my studies have been geared towards politics and religion, what was the biggest meeting point of those ever? Well, you know, the biggest war ever, World War II, and then the biggest church at the time, Roman Catholicism. You know, let's dig into this. And it was something I didn't know a lot about. And so I, I pursued it. But that's, um, I, I think, you know, drawing on your your question there to be more specific a favorite area of mine is debunking misunderstandings and and those two areas and especially where they meet you know the field of where religion has influenced politics it's a huge hot button for people because you know as soon as they hear those terms they immediately start conjuring things up and it's most often the case that they've never actually read the details, you know, the scholarship on that particular event, whether it's the, you know, the First Amendment or, you know, phrases like the separation of church and state, you know, everybody on all sides immediately hears a phrase like that and they, they draw their lines and, you know, this is what it means and that's how it is. And I like getting into the details of stuff like that and realizing and helping people see it's way more complicated than you think. You know, in, in just understanding the nuance involved in some of those things of, of recognizing these issues are really complex. And to draw just an immediate black and white, you know, this is how it is. Who boy, that's tough because you, there's a lot of scholarship to show that, that it can't possibly be that simple. And so that's kind of what I enjoy doing is just helping people take a step back and recognizing how complicated some of these things are and how holding just a pure, simple black, white opinion on something, you, you better have a lot more evidence than I think you do if you're doing that, <laughs> because it's most often the case that you don't. 
For sure. But that that lack of evidence or understanding never stopped from anyone from having a strong opinion, though, right, Greg? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, and I was, you know, I was just talking about this with someone. It, what's fascinating to me on those those topics, at least if you're making a claim about something, at least make sure that there's someone on your side who is established, who's actually making that claim. And it's often the case that there, there is no such thing. You know, it's like the, the people who are arguing for things are arguing beyond the claims of their own system. So if they're part of a particular church, you know, they make some absolutist claim. And then you go to the scholarship and the actual leaders of that church, they're not saying that. You know, they're not saying any such thing. It's just this one person who's, you know, yelling on the Internet. It's like, come on, you know, take a step back and, and look at this in the big picture. And that's kind of what I try to do. It's uh, my psychology degree was focused on that of, of systems thinking and cognitive biases in relation to it and helping people see like there are more than one way to look at things. Right. <laughs> there are truly different perspectives that we need to understand in order to make any kind of any kind of claim. Totally. Totally. Well, Greg, we're coming in, into the show. I figured I'd turn the mic over to you for any closing comments or thoughts you might have. Um, no, well, first, thanks for having me. You know, as always, it's it's a huge pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I was secretly hoping that you were going to retire out west here, out in the, the <laughs> Colorado area. We can we could do this in person. You know, maybe some kind of pints and podcast thing. Cause that's, that's got a lot of appeal, but uh, the vir <laughs> virtual world is the next best thing. So I'm, I'm happy to be here, but to those out there um, again, you know, I'm, I'm someone who has done a lot of different things. I have a, a very diverse background. You know, I spent 10 years on my own after high school doing various blue collar jobs before I even joined the military and since 2009, I've worked in the veteran space with several different organizations. So I have a fairly decent handle on, you know, what what's going on out there in terms of what's legitimate and what's not. Uh, and on that note, I guess the, the thing that I want to pass on to anybody is if you're looking for somebody that's going to look at this in a little bit more reasonable fashion and not just try to steer you in one direction, please do email me. Um, I am happy to speak with people on that because there's a lot of salesmanship in this space and there has to be, right? We, we have to have marketers who sell uh, whatever business you're working for because that's what brings in the paychecks, right? We do have to have that. But at the same time, that sales pitch is really geared towards steering you in a direction. Um, I'm here to tell you that I'm happy to talk to you regardless of what direction you go and try to help you figure out, you know, any veteran out there, try to help them figure out what it is they're doing and and what it is they should be doing. So, you know, that that's the only thing I would leave you with. Of course, I would love to have you entertain the idea that Code Platoon is a is a possible fit for you. That's awesome if so. If not, I'll still talk to you and I'll still help you unpack the the mysteries of post-military life. Well, Greg, I think that's an incredible offer and I hope a lot of folks take advantage of that personally and check into Code Platoon. I think what you're doing like I said before, is an important and interesting and useful for the future. And I think we'll leave it at that. So, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show, brother. Look forward to talking to you again, having you back on the show a little bit down the road. And thanks for what you're doing for the country and for our bets. Well, thanks, Charles. And I appreciate it because you're you're doing far more than I am. So I, that means a lot coming from you. So thank you. <laughs> thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the Battlefields podcast. I'd like to thank today's guest, Greg Drobny, 
Our editor, Michael Neal, and the support provided by the Havoc Journal, the Second Mission Foundation, and especially the Epoch Times. And most of all, many thanks to you, our listeners. Thank you for your time. God bless America and good hunting on your own battlefields.